Hello, it's Wednesday, the 7th of February, 2018 at one o'clock Eastern time. And this is Student Affairs Live, the online learning community for student affairs educators in higher education. I'm your host, Heather Shea, broadcasting live from Michigan State University at one o'clock Eastern time. And this is Student Affairs February, Live, 2018 at okay. one o'clock Eastern time. Hold on, we're and having some technical affairs issues live, today. The online learning community for um, student affairs educators in higher education. Okay. I think I'm back, sorry. Uh, we are having technical issues today, uh, but we are doing the best we can. So thank you for hanging with us. Uh, so back to where I was saying is my introduction. On today's episode, um, I have the pleasure of talking with six panelists about opportunities for engagement in conversation about racial justice and decolonization at the upcoming ACPA convention in Houston, Texas. So in a moment, I'll introduce the six folks who are joining me today. Um, before, but before I do, I need to just give a quick shout out to those who make these free webcasts possible. So today's episode is made possible by ACPA, our exclusive sponsor. In um, ACPA is one of the many ways um, that you can receive professional development. If you go to myacpa.org, you can find all kinds of other uh, ways to engage. And if you have not yet registered for the 2018 ACPA convention in Houston, um, registration rates go up this Friday. So we would love for you to register. Please visit the link that we are tweeting out right now. Student Affairs Live is a part of the Higher Ed Live Network. Our episodes offer you direct access to the best and brightest minds in education. Be a part of our live broadcast by sharing your knowledge. Thanks again to my friend, uh, Erica Thompson, for hanging with us on some technical issues today. Uh, and if you have questions, um, Erica can, is monitoring our back channel and she will let me know. Uh, We're happy to incorporate those into today's discussion. Uh, we broadcast live on Wednesdays at one o'clock Eastern time and most of or all of Tony's and my past episodes are free and easy to access in our archives. We are also produced by M Stoner, a digital first agency committed to tailored solutions that drive real results. Um, we have a new white paper in our myth-busting series that's available, and we're tweeting out a link to that right now. So now on with today's episode. On many campuses, administrators look to student affairs educators to facilitate conversations and work directly with students and other staff to discuss campus issues related to racial justice and decolonization. Regardless of whether our official job description tasks us with these functions, all of us are responsible for addressing campus climate issues. And certainly our role in supporting students and their activism and engagement is central to our work. So as we work um, to create alliances across communities and work collaboratively, um, as, the, as the title of today's episode suggests, there is so much work to do. Regardless of whether our graduate programs prepared us for these roles, we can gain skills and further our own awareness in order to effectively lead conversations related to racial justice and decolonization through professional development. So on today's episode, we have six leaders who are either involved with the 2018 convention team and or have been engaged with the ACPA strategic imperative for racial justice and decolonization. We're gonna talk about the topic a little bit and contextualize what we mean by the work. And then we're gonna turn to talking about the many opportunities for engagement um, at the ACPA convention next month um, in Houston. So as a side note, uh, I know that in preparing for this episode, we received some really helpful feedback and we realized it would be useful to host a future episode focused specifically on decolonization in higher education and student affairs. So I am in the process right now of identifying panelists and scheduling that episode for later this semester. Also, before I introduce our six panelists, lots of disclaimers today, sorry folks. Um, but before I introduce our six panelists joining the conversation, uh, please know that the voices here today don't collectively represent all of the individual identities that are engaged in this work. Um, Tony and I aim to identify panelists of professionals and scholars who can speak to these issues regardless of positionality. And I'm deeply grateful to the ACPA leadership who were able to suggest individuals to participate in today's show. So let me introduce them. Um, so joining me today are Dr. Dre Domaine. Hi, Dre. Bill Huff. Lynn Huynh. Hi, Lynn. Melissa Beard-Jacob. 
uh, Ray Plaza, hi Ray, and Richie Stevens. Uh, thank you all for being here. Hopefully everybody's connection is working. Uh, we're having technical issues all around, um, but as you all introduce yourselves, if you could share a little bit about what you do um, when you're not working on ACPA work, um, but then what your responsibilities are with regard to the convention team or other, or other areas of ACPA. Um, now let's start with Dre. Sure. Hi, again, I'm uh, Dre Domain. Um, so outside of ACPA, um, I'm Assistant Dean of Students and Director of Multicultural International Student Services um, at Hampshire College. Um, I've been involved with ACPA for uh, going on about 12 years now. Um, I'm currently past chair of the Commission for Social Justice Educators um, and the incoming uh, coordinator-elect um, on the Leadership um, Assembly for Commissions. Um, my other hat, third hat, <laughs> is I'm um, alongside with Richie. I'm one of the co-chairs for our um, Imperative uh, Curriculum Committee. Excellent. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, Bill, welcome. Hello, uh, Bill Hoff, uh, my pronouns are he and his. Um, in my sort of outside of ACPA, I work at Georgetown University where I'm the Associate Director in our Office of Residential Living. Um, ACPA involvement currently is I serve on the steering team for the Houston team, um, ACPA 18 team. I'm also the chair for the ACPA 19 in Boston. And I am uh, luckily one of the folks who also gets to work on the strate strategic imperative uh, curriculum task force along with Dre and Richie. Great, thanks for joining us. Lynn, welcome. Hi, uh, my name is Lynn, uh, I use she, her, hers. Um, I'm a resident director at Miami University um, and I am on the equity and inclusion board for the ACPA 18 convention team. Great, thanks for being here. Uh, Melissa, welcome. Uh, hello, Buzu, Awanku Kwe Nadishnikaz, Nindo Dem. Hello, my name is Woman in the Fog or Melissa Beard Jacob. That's my traditional name. Um, I am Eagle Clan and a member of the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians. Um, my pronouns are she, her, hers. And my day job is I work at The Ohio State University as an intercultural specialist for Native and Indigenous students. Um, and additionally with ACPA, um, I am the Indigenous Advisor for ACPA 18 Houston Convention. Um, and I'm also on the, um, the Committee for the Strategic Imperative for Racial Justice and Decolonization. Great, thanks for being here. Ray, welcome. Thanks, oh, thanks everyone, sorry about that. Uh, Dr. Ray Plaza, he, him, his. I, my day job is the Director for Diversity and Inclusion. I'm at Santa Clara University, and um, within ACPA, I have the privilege of serving as this year's ACPA 18 Convention Chair. I um, also serve as the past chair of the ACPA Latinx Network, and currently on the um, External Advisory Board as well. So thanks again, Heather. Great, thanks for being here. Richie, how are you? Good, hopefully you can hear me. Um, my name is Richie Stevens, and uh, what I do most of my time is I'm serving as Acting Dean of Graduate Studies and Continuing Education. I'm also an Associate Professor and Program Coordinator of our College Student Development and Administration Program at Shepherd University in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. Uh, I currently sit on the Governing Board as the Director of Professional Development, and I am co-chair with Dre, uh, looking at the curriculum for the Strategic Imperative. Great. So we have an incredible panel today. We're going to try to cover a lot of ground in the next hour um, and hopefully give everybody a chance to talk. But um, as we try to, on all of our episodes, if folks have follow-up comments that they'd like to make, please insert those. Um, and for folks who are watching, if you have questions for any of the panelists um, about what we're talking about today or related to the convention, please uh, tweet us at hashtag HigherEdLive. So on a previous episode, actually, I was joined by the ACPA presidential trio, um, Andy and Squire, the Director of Equity and Inclusion, um, to talk about the launch of the new bold strategic imperative. Um, if you haven't seen that episode, we'll tweet a link to that video, um, which goes into a lot of background information about what we mean. Um, so, but assuming not everybody has seen it, uh, Richie, could you start with giving us kind of a, a brief overview as a governing board member um, about how the strategic imperative for racial justice and decolonization um, came to be. Sure, 
So uh, back in November of 2016, we had uh, several days of conversation with the governing board uh, to look at uh, what's, what is the direction that we want to go as an association. And so in November of 2016, we adopted this strategic imperative for racial justice. Um, based on conversations, when we pre presented this information, uh, we recognized through uh, leadership, through NAIN, the Native Aboriginal and Indigenous Network and other um, indigenous people coming forward and saying that when we talk about racial justice, we're not inclusive. And so had our, um, we had an additional education as members of the governing board to recognize that the language we were using wasn't inclusive, even when we were trying to attempt to address an important issue. And so in July of 17, based on the recommendations, uh, we changed the strategic imperative name for racial justice to racial justice and decolonization recognizing that those um, have, have different uh, impacts on different individuals, recognizing there's some similarities, but there are some differences, and recognizing that we needed to be educated on both aspects as we move forward. I would say that the, the big piece that um, came forward when we introduced this was, this was not the first imperative that ACPA has ever had. You know, we, we've had the student learning imperative, Learning Reconsidered was really an imperative, um, but this one came forward because it was the first one that I think we really had that addressed a specific issue of social justice and not social justice in general. And so I think that um, individuals at first hearing this felt like the ACPA was going in a different direction instead of thinking about what do we do in our work as student affairs versus thinking about how do we use this as a a lens for the work that we do in student affairs. So that would be a brief overview that I think might get us started for those who are less familiar. Awesome, thanks so much, Richie. So Melissa, you know, this word decolonization, I, I think is um, for, for many folks might be new or might be something that they're not familiar with, which is why we're gonna have a deeper dive in a, in a future episode. But can you talk with us specifically what we mean by that? Um, and how that work intersects for us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that uh, the easiest way to think about decolonization um, is truly to think about it as, it always goes back to the land. So the land that we're on, the land we're occupying, um, and the importance of land to indigenous folks in our life ways. So not only do we exist physically on, on spaces and pieces of land, but we also learn um, from the land as well. And so, um, I always was taught that, you know, the land is a depository of culture, a depository of stories, a depository of history. So it's very important, you know, no matter where you are, um, to, to learn from the land and to find out, you know, which peoples are there, were there, you know, continue to still be there. We have to think about removal and how folks were forcibly removed from traditional homelands. Um, and that people also continue to inhabit those spaces um, today. And so I think for, um, you know, for higher ed folks and, and thinking about ACPA and convention, um, it's just very important to think about that. You know, um, like in Houston, we are um, very much connecting with the Alabama Cachetta tribe and having the elder come um, and, and welcoming us and providing information about his culture. And so, um, you know, not to get too heavy into it, but I think, um, you know, for institutions, it's always important to just remember whose land are you on? Um, and, and what are some steps that you can take to acknowledge those people um, and to also learn as well? Right. Thank you. Um, Bill, tell us a little bit about how you see uh, decolonization intersecting with your work in student affairs. Sure. Um, well, you know, I, I want to acknowledge first that I was one of those people that didn't know anything about decolonization. Um, luckily, you know, there have been really brave, um, mostly indigenous folks who've been, you know, kind enough to sort of to sort of educate me. And I want to give a shout out to Melissa and um, her colleague Symphony, who did a presentation at last year's July leadership meeting when we were preparing for Houston that really opened my per perspectives about what decolonization is and taught me how much more I have to learn and unlearn about this process. Um, so for me, as as a white cisgender male, right? So there's lots of privilege wrapped up in there. The more I've done work around decolonization, it's sort of understanding how closely um, colonization, when I look at it, is really 
tied closely to all those systems of power, specifically white supremacy. So, you know, when I look about how our country operates and I look at some of sort of the, the cultural norms that we have, um, this, you know, need this like hunger for power, um, this idea of like patriarchy and about, you know, top-down decisions, um, that all, while really deeply rooted in white supremacy, also has a deep tie to colon this idea of colonizing. And so for me, how it connects is sort of really doing some deep personal reflections around, you know, how we make decisions, who gets to make decisions. Um, and that can be really overwhelming. I think in my work, the key is to sort of start from my center. Where do I have control? So, you know, in my work with students, in my work on committees and task force within ACPA, um, when it comes to decision making, do we always do top down or are we sort of more autocratic and uh, flat decisions making. So really thinking about sort of simple processes and how we can make small changes. So that's really sort of how in my own journey as I'm sort of learning how I've been colonized and my thinking and my ways of being is to sort of center those small chances where I can sort of make a shift um, to sort of not supporting those systems that might be limiting other people's voices. Thanks so much, Bill. Um, so when I think a little bit about this topic and, and you know, your point that uh, for those of us who have privileged identities, we haven't had to think about um, like that is a place where we can, um, you know, sit this one out. Um, and so I think the point of today's episode and the point of the work around the strategic imperative is that it is our it is our work. It is all of our work um, in this profession. Um, and I often use the model from exploring leadership text, uh, the know, be, and do model. So you know, who, what do we need to know about? all of the issues that are affecting higher education, but specifically about racial justice and decolonization. And then who do we need to be? Like, what are our personal values that kind of drive that? And then functionally and in terms of action, what do we do? Um, and so I'd love to kind of think about tangible ways of moving from places of knowledge and philosophical foundations towards strategies for action, since we are a praxis-based um, praxis uh, profession. Um, Lynn, do you want to start us off by talking a little bit about that? And then I'll, I'll pop it over to Ray, too. So. Sure. Thank you. Um, well, I think for, for me, um, a good place to start is um, our strategic imperative um, syllabus that we have on the convention website. There's a lot of great um, self-reflecting uh, articles and movies and podcasts um, for self-education and self-reflection. I think that really gets to the no part. Um, of, of what's happening. Um, and then moving on to the be and do, I think it's a lot of the self-reflection and figuring out um, what, what that all means to you now and then making a plan um, to carry out what you think you need to do, um, where your place is in the conversation. Great. Right. Give us um, a little bit of context related to your position, not only on your campus, but also related to the convention. Sure. Um, and I think before, Heather, I just want to sort of acknowledge for the audience out there that in many ways, we are continuing the journey of this conversation. Um, we're not the first ones that have started this. You know, we've basically have relied on those that have fought, have raised these issues. So I want to acknowledge the heavy lifting and work from those that came before us that were advocating, talking about these issues within our communities our institutions before today. I think our climate today on our campuses and nationally, we're at a point where I think some of these issues are now bubbling up in different ways. So I think that's important to consider for our audience out there that we acknowledge the, the lifting of others um, that have brought us to today. Um, I see a lot of parallels with the discussions that we're having on our home campuses um, in terms of you know how are we centering the voices of the most marginalized, those that have been impacted, how we look at our own systems as we think about institutional racism, oppression, um, et cetera. When it comes to convention, just as Richie shared about how this came about in November of 16, that was around the same time that the planning process was just starting for ACPA 18. So I think it was very important for the team that we understand what the imperative was about and how we align the convention with this broader ACP initiative. I think if we would have planned a convention without the tie-in, then we'd be doing a disservice. Um, so I think these, the convention steering team, the convention planning team was very deliberate in really 
heeding the guidance that was coming from the association, from Donna Lee, and then Stephen, and then the governing board, and really thinking critically about what does this imperative mean for our work um, in shaping what this convention experience um, would be and will be about um, as we get ready for Houston. And I know later on we'll talk a bit more specifics, but uh, I want um, those listening to sort of understand that I think that's been on the forefront of our planning process. How do we align and basically enhance and build upon the work in order to move this forward? Thanks so much, Ray. Um, so I know Dre, in our kind of preparatory conversation, we talked about functional areas in ACPA. Both both of us have experience um, leading commissions within ACPA, which for those who are new to the association, um, we have different types of entity groups within, but commissions primarily focus on functional areas within our profession. Um, talk a little bit about how that group has, has grappled with the strategic imperative and what kind of work um, they have done to come along to think a little bit about how this intersects with all different functional areas. Sure. Um, so yeah, I've been with the commissions for quite some time, both as a chair and now coming in as um, soon to be the coordinator of all the commissions. And I think, you know, I think our effort actually started um, indirectly before the imperative was announced. Um, so thinking about summer 2016, right before the governing board actually met at our July leadership meeting, you know, we were collectively um, struck by all that was going on in our country with, um, you know, racial-based violence on our campus, what have you, and we literally had to stop <laughs> our conversation to have a dialogue as a group. And that by itself was a pivotal moment for us forming as a group, but then planted the seed for us with the imperative. Um, once the imperative was announced, um, I think that you know commissions collectively, uh, and more of the leadership, were really challenged with how to do this. Um, I think there were some folks that, I think in general, what I will say about um, the chair team is that I think collectively they were all on board. They had the values and believed that racial justice was important, but I think um, what I observed was that there was a how. How do we do this? How do we convince our director of body that this is important. How do we incorporate this in our work every day? We don't have examples. And then we had the other end of the spectrum where people were ready to go doing webinars, you know, really actively writing things, what have you. And so I think, you know, my role in particular with that is, you know, um, a little bit indirect, um, but, you know, alongside our current coordinator, Amy, is to really support those leaders, right? Um, I keep sitting on what Stephen Quay often says is to do something, right? And I think that what gets people very challenged is they feel like I must have this perfect plan. I must, you know, it can't, no mistakes. I'm fearful of making the mistake and what happens. And I, I think what I've been encouraging the folks that I work with in particular is do something, have the conversation, find ways, find examples, and we don't have to be perfect right now, but we need to start somewhere. Um, so it's been really good. Um, and I, I've been really pleased to see all that the commissions have done. I, I don't think this um, would have happened several years ago when I first became a chair. So I, I think it's been really small doses, but um, some good doses. Great, thanks so much. Um, so Bill, tell us a little bit about, you You also have um, experience with entity groups in the coalition, coalition land. Um, <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about conversations that are happening and then and also kind of more broadly about accountability and, and other things that we're doing, actually doing the tangible examples? Sure. Um, yeah, I'm a past chair of what used to be the Coalition for LGBT Awareness and is now the Coalition for Gender Identi uh, Identities and Sexualities. Um, so, you know, I think when the strategic imperative came out, I know I was the sort of it was my last year's chair. And for us, I think. Um, as a group sort of that has always centered LGBTQ um, issues is sort of seeing the intersections of our identities, right? So how do we as queer folks um, look at sort of the racial implications, right? The privileges I get as a white gay man, um, what am I doing to perpetuate trauma and harm within my own queer community? And so I think we had lots of conversations. We centered that when we looked at program proposals, those are the sorts of, we, we wanted to sort of center race and decolonization in our program proposals, which is I think what a lot of other entity groups are doing with sort of, with all the sponsored programs. Um, for me, I think, you know, when we talk about conversations, what I think is, is really difficult because the world doesn't want us to do it is for folks to talk about what race means, especially white people. Um, and I've been really privileged in my life to sort of be 
put in spaces where I've been able to sort of be in community with white folks talking about race, racial justice, right, and decolonization. So just, uh, you know, shout out to the Social Justice Training Institute, which is a race immersive five-day institute. Um, that sort of like laid the foundation for me. And I think where I sort of continued that is in the past year, sort of thinking about with the strategic imperative, how do we create space um, where we can talk about racial justice, but that we also create space for race-alike work, which we'll talk a little bit about the caucuses um, and how that's showing up at ACPA 18, um, but also across race, right? That 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 both types of work are important. Um, you know, for me personally, you know, engaging white supremacist culture in sort of higher ed slash student affairs slash the world has become a real passion for mine, uh, passion for me. And so, you know, uh, just a, a personal plug is that I have a, a three-hour institute on Monday at the convention, sort of engaging white supremacy and how we dismantle it within ourselves and within our institutions. So I think what's really important is for, and I guess this is a personal call to action for my white colleagues, is that um, the world sort of doesn't want us to think we need to be here, but we need to be here more than anyone else. Um, we need to sort of be in community with other white folks, hold one another accountable, do some deep personal reflection. Um, so I think what I what I've really appreciated about the, the organization of ACPA is just creating space because white supremacy doesn't want us to do that. And so, you know, it's small steps and having patience with ourselves in those steps. Um, but for me, that's that's where I see to see the powerful work sort of starting to lay um, for us as we uh, sort of really engage a strategic imperative. Great. Thanks so much. Um, Melissa, tell us a little bit about another tangible action, either um, through the coalition work that you all have done in the network. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that uh, Nain, the Native Aboriginal and Indigenous Network, has done a really amazing job um, of trying to bring some of these like hands-on actions that folks can take back to their institutions. Um, I mean, I've, this has only been my third year of ACPA, and it's just incredible as a Native person to walk in you know, I'll never forget at Montreal, walking into opening session and seeing those elders on that stage, giving a blessing and a welcome. I mean, I teared up. It was just such an amazing moment for me. Um, and so I think that even those simple things like incorporating the elders into opening session is really wonderful. Um, land acknowledgement. And that is something that you can do at your own institution. Um, I know here, at Ohio State, I have been encouraging my coworkers in the Multicultural Center to do a land acknowledgement before their presentations. Um, and so it's just a simple, you know, utilize that land acknowledgement statement, um, honoring those, you know, that existed and still exist on the land today. Um, and then also, um, you know, just looking and reaching out to your local community. And so knowing um, which elders and which Native community members exist here, um, you know, here at Ohio State, we have um, a community center. And so we not only have our academic native community, but we also have our um, community communal center where we bring in folks to come and teach students, you know, traditional crafts um, and, and different things like that. So um, there's definitely lots of resources just outside within your own community as well. Thanks so much. Uh, so not to leave off all of the entity groups, we have one other that is a place-based um, kind of organization, which is our state chapters. Um, Richie, can you talk a little bit about what you know of state chapters involvement and how they're taking this strategic imperative to the regional level and to the state level? Oh. Sure. <laughs> I am. Um... I had the privilege of speaking at the Maryland College Personnel Association this fall. They asked me to speak on the strategic imperative. And what I found was that um, the members who were there were eager to embrace it and really wanted some tools. And it wasn't meaning that the individual institutions weren't already doing things, but they were eager to think through how they could do better, how they could do more. Um, I also had the opportunity to speak at um, a regional conference for, for ACRA, which is the um, um, registrars and college admissions officers, um, not necessarily a great membership of ACPA, but are doing great work on our campuses. Um, and it spoke to this and pre presented the strategic imperative to them, again, very eager to want to continue to work and develop um, departments and um, divisions that were 
had a, a greater awareness of racial and decolonization issues that um, they may not have been been part of. Um, so I think it's people are ready to do the work, are doing good work, um, and are looking towards um, ACPA and others to um, build on the work that they're doing. In addition, uh, we had um, a symposium. Some people may were able to attend. That was a joint symposium, presidential symposium between ASH and ACPA. Um, and the members of those panels and presentations did a wonderful job talking about how this strategic imperative was playing out in ASH um, under the, the previous president, uh, currently with um, our president here at ACPA, Stephen, and coming to the next presidential um, ASH work that she's doing and thinking about the intersections that go along with the strategic imperative. Um, was a very informative uh, information that was not only on site in California, but I think 160 other institutions had represent, representation um, during the live webinar. So again, people doing great work and giving us good information to move forward. Yeah, the, the partnership with ASH, I think, has been um, really important as we build a base of scholars. And Lori Patton Davis's uh, theme for the convention um, for ASH next year is uh, envisioning a woke academy. So I think there will be even more opportunities for partnership um, down the road as well. Uh, so, Dre, why don't you and uh, Richie tell us a little bit about the curriculum piece and what are some of the, the ways that curriculum play in to um, this conversation about racial justice and decolonization? Sure. So, um, Stephen Quay asked us um, to kind of co-chair the initiative. And so, I think um, my perception of what had been happening is that there have been a lot of conversations, a lot of announcing, a lot of educating about why the imperative, but we hadn't gotten to the how we were going to do it. And so, um, again, the convention team for 2018 has done a fantastic job with creating a syllabus and uh, identifying opportunities at convention, um, but being mindful that not everybody gets to go to convention and also being mindful that if we want this to be a sustainable long-term effort, we had to create resources, tools, and opportunities to engage um, members and campuses beyond that. Um, so Richie and I have been working together for the past few months, um, we've had a few calls, and I think so far where we are is that we're identifying two major um, goals with our, our, our group. So I think one side of the group is thinking about ACPS and association, our leadership structure, our processes, and how do we create this um, as an embedded practice for um, racial justice and decolonization throughout. So how are we looking at award selection? How are we looking at leadership? How are we looking at statements and what have you? And then the other um, kind of side of our group is looking at the, you know, how do we provide spaces of dialogue, um, kind of small self-study or kind of you know, campus study groups um, and other different kind of efforts to really um, engage with the syllabus that was the foundation um, in a deeper way. So they're actually making um, personal change, but also changing their campus. I'm not sure if Richie wants to add any additional things that I missed. No, I think the only thing I would add is that we're trying to create a library of resources that the curriculum has started so that individuals can do the individual work as well as the group work that needs to happen. And so we want to make sure that we continue to have the best uh, literature research that's going on available to our members so that they can choose to figure out how they're going to pace their own learning uh, throughout this process and be continuous. So you mentioned um, individual as well as uh, group work. And I think one of the ways that uh, we're, we're going to be doing that at convention is through caucuses. Um, Lynn, can you talk a little bit about what initiated that idea, what, what the form is of caucuses, what does that mean, and then you know how we're formalizing that within um, ongoing conversations about the strategic imperative? Sure. So um, I was brought into the conversation um, after Dean, our um, Equity and Inclusion Board Chair, um, met with Stephen Quay and um, talked about this is what we're doing. And I was kind of handed the project. Um, so we looked at um, what kind of groups we wanted to caucus around. And um, we, we, we were going to talk about racial um, topics. And so we were, we, we went that way. And so we have, um, I can't remember the final number. Um, I think it's like eight or 10 racial groups um, for caucusing. 
Um, and we're, Dean and I are coming up with guided questions. Um, we're looking at um, potentially having facilitators or moderators in those groups um, so that the groups are small, um, you get some consistency if that's what you're looking for, but also an opportunity for you if you identify um, as multiracial to be able to attend multiple different caucuses or there will be a multiracial caucus group as well. And so looking at all those logistics. Um, and then again, uh, I want to reference the syllabus um, just because a lot of the things that um, Dean and I have put on there, hopefully people will get a chance to um, look at before convention if they are able to attend. But if not, I think that again, a lot of those resources are great for doing that self-reflection if you're unable to attend. Excellent. Ray, other thoughts on caucuses? I think one of the things that we've also done, I want to thank Lynn and Dean, is really center the caucus sessions each day so there's no conflicting thing happening. So our hope is that individuals on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday will spend that hour in their caucus groups not worried about do I make another meeting or do I do a program instead of caucusing. Those are the only things. So we've been very intentional with trying to provide uh, that opportunity um, throughout the course of those three days um, with the hard work that uh, Dean and Lynn um, and the rest of the ENI team has done. So I think that uh, centering, I think, will be very important and, and a powerful message so that all of us are engaged, not focused on meetings, but engaged in this work each of those days. Excellent. So speakers are all also centering um, this topic. Robin D'Angelo um, is one of my favorite authors related uh, to work around whiteness. Um, Bill, do you want to talk a little bit about her as a speaker and what we can kind of expect from um, her contributions? Sure. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll echo your, um, so, you know, in my work around sort of uh, engaging whiteness and white supremacy in ourselves and in our campuses, I think, uh, you know, Dr. D'Angelo is one of the leading voices in sort of getting white folks to sort of do deep personal reflective work. Um, you know, and I think if, you know, just to point out what everyone keeps saying, that there's this reality that there's work we need to do within ourselves and then work we need to do in community. Um, and I think the foundational pieces that she'll provide for us, you know, whether that's around, you know, the term around white fragility and how white folks tend to get emotional or angry or just shut down the conversation when we get uncomfortable, um, giving us some real tools to sort of build that, especially because for a lot of white folks, maybe this will be the first time they've ever engaged race. And so, you know, we, we there was a, co um, a real understanding as a convention steering team that, um, that we need practice and we need resources when we're in convention to sort of do good work. Um, so that we try not to cause as, uh, as little amount of harm as possible. Because I think sometimes when we do this racial justice and decolonization work, uh, we have really good intentions and then through our good intentions, we cause a negative impact. Um, and so I think one of the things with speakers is we tried to look at breadth and depth um, to try to speak to as many elements of sort of racial justice and decolonization work as possible. Great. Um, Melissa, tell us a little bit about additional speakers that you're, that you're aware of. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm super excited this year because we have two um, Native and Indigenous speakers. We have Tanaya Winder and Dr. Adrian Keene, um, and they'll both be speaking at the AM plenary on Monday um, at convention. And I'm just super excited to have such visibility of Native folks within higher education speaking. Um, and additionally, I think that um, they'll also be able to pro provide some really great tangible tools and actions for folks to take home to their campuses. Um, I know specifically Dr. Keene's work is with Native students in higher ed. Um, and although she identifies, you know, she's a Cherokee scholar, um, very much into the study of Native students, her background is solely in higher education. So she's super excited to just get in and talk about these things but also um, be able to connect folks with resources that are, you know, looking for ideas or encouragement on how to work with Native students. Because I think often, um, you know, folks like me in my role where I'm an Indigenous person working with Indigenous students, but we also have to think about the folks that might not be Indigenous and are working with Native students and what can they do um, to try to make those connections and those relationships with students and foster that on their own campuses. Awesome, thanks. Ray, other speakers that you'd like to mention? 
Sure. So um, in addition to the opening and the Monday AM on Tuesday afternoon, um, two speakers, uh, Melissa Fleming, really will focus on our, the efforts with immigrants in light of some of the national dialogue. And then um, Asian scholar Jeff Chang, um, based out of Stanford um, and his work. So that'll be an opportunity to truly engage the Asian community, knowing that in Houston, that's one of the larger um, underrepresented populations. And then we close on Wednesday with three, in many ways, activists that will sort of center how we can do this work and how that work is intersectional. Um, the work of Jonathan Higgins, um, the work of Christina Jimenez, leading United We Dream in the current efforts around our dreamers, to the work of Zee Nicolazzo and how we begin to address creating more trans-friendly spaces on our college campuses, how do we break those systems of oppression within higher ed, et cetera. So our hope is those, those three closers will give us some tangible tools for us to go back and be activists around these issues that are intersectional to racial justice and decolonization. Excellent. So other core aspects that we want to mention, um, kind of as we close up our time today, uh, Melissa, I know you had one other piece that you wanted to talk about regarding our elder in residence. I know you mentioned it already. Uh, other things you want to talk about related to that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we will be uh, inviting the second chief of the Alabama Cachetta tribe as our elder this year. Um, Herb Johnson Sr. and his son will also be there. Um, Herb actually was able to connect with us at JLM over the summer. So it was very exciting to be able to meet him prior to convention. Um, and so it's nice I'll be able to secondly greet him again um, at convention in March. But um, he will be with us for opening and closing, um, providing some uh, welcome and blessings. Um, and I think we're just extremely lucky to have him with us. He's battled um, a couple of some health complications this year. So it's super exciting that he'll still be able to join us. Um, and I also think it really just goes back to um, in thinking about decolonization and decolonizing convention. Um, you know, the ability to have this elder with us for us to learn from um, a community member to take home pieces of his story. Um, and so we're really thankful that he is um, going to be with us to share those gifts. Excellent. I know um, educational sessions are an important part for uh, folks to participate and attend, uh, as well as serve as presenters. Um, Ray, talk a little bit about how the program team this year thought about educational sessions um, at convention. Sure, I wanna give a shout out to Dean and the members of the program team for their efforts. Um, we have really 400 educational sessions and over the last few years, we know that uh, social justice-based programs have been the most submitted sessions that we have. Um, so I, I think we see that thread, that interest, one of the things that Dean's team has done is to ensure that we center not only the social justice racial piece, but also ensure that we are covering decolonization and not making the assumption that we all know what that means. So working with Melissa, members of Maine and others, really being intentional throughout the course of the different 14 program blocks to make sure that we have these different opportunities. Um, and among those 400 different sessions, we have 14 different program types. Um, so I think there's lots of different opportunities for our attendees to learn in short impact statements, 20-minute sessions, three-hour sessions, like Bill mentioned, to research po poster or research um, paper presentation. So I think we've tried to be very diligent to weave that through in addition to all the uh, other nine competency areas in addition to social justice, as well as some of the functional areas as well. Excellent. Uh, I know you and I both share um, having been program chair and it is a, a massive undertaking. And so I, I applaud your, your group in that work. Um, Richie or Dre, uh, if, you're, if one who's watching today wants to be involved in the curriculum committee, are there, are there some times at convention that they might connect with you all? Dre, you want to say? Sure. Uh, um, yes, there are actually two times. Um, so um, Richie had the wonderful suggestion of, um, we've been doing a lot of conversations virtually, so we wanted to have some face time. And so if you happen to be attending convention, we have two time blocks, um, Monday, March 12th, 
from about 12.15 to 1.15 p.m. is the first one. And the second one is Tuesday, March 13th um, at 8.45. Um, locations will be um, publicly um, in the program materials. Just talk to Ray about that, so thank you, Ray. Um, if for some reason you can't make those times or in general you want to be, be connected to the committee, feel free, feel free to reach out to me um, personally or to Richie. We'll be happy to catch you up for sure. Excellent. I, I know at the start of the episode, we tweeted out everybody's um, Twitter handles. So folks want to connect with you that way, that's one way to do it. Um, I'm sure there's also places online where we can find your contact information as well. Um, so Bill, you know, you mentioned at the beginning that you are chairing the 2019 convention in Boston. Uh, plans I know are already underway. This is, this is not a, you know, a, a short endeavor planning a convention. Um, talk a little bit about how you're kind of creating some through lines between this convention and what's going to happen in Boston. Sure. Um, well, you know, it, it's a it's a privilege to, you know, to be in a leadership position on the 18 team and to have seen the intentional work that's been done to be able to continue that work through the 19 team. So we just met uh, the steering team, which is a, it's a core group of about 11 folks. I met in Boston last week for our initial site visit. Um, you know, one of the things that we've done in our planning, because we've been meeting for the past six weeks, is um, really sort of centering the idea of decolonization. And because we'll be in Boston, which is you know, part of the original colonies, there is like a deep rooted um, colonization shows up in a lot in that city and in how we think of that city. And so for us, you know, as we've been creating logos and as we think of pictures that we use, um, not causing trauma to people, which images, you know, there are things that are tied to colonization that I would have never, you know, the, the role of lighthouses um, as, as colonizing symbols. You know, it's one of those things as we were looking at logos, even simple symbols can can cause pain, and um, and so we've been really purposeful. It means our process is deep and complicated, and that we suggest something, and then we have to create space and community for dialogue. And so as we move forward, you know, I want to welcome. Um, we we move in with the best of intentions, but you know we will make mistakes at times, um, and so you know just keep centering and making sure we include as many voices as possible, but sort of trying to stay humble in the work that we do and knowing that the work we do sort of needs to reflect the greater diversity and inclusion of ACPA's um, membership. So um, so that's sort of where we're at. Um, we will sort of be a, like sponges in Houston, and so you will see us um, with. Um, we sort of wear buttons. Um, and so um, if you see someone with an ACPA 19 button and there'll be plenty for you all to have as well, to reach out to one of us. Um, if you have ideas that you wanna do, um, send our way, feel free. You can always sort of tweet out at the Greater ACPA handle and they'll pass it along to us. So I'm really just sort of excited to sort of see all the great new things that the 18 team has planned um, and then just build upon the, you know, the awesome foundations they've laid for us. Uh, ACPA is, is slightly famous for the button, um, yeah. the, the named the name badge uh, flare uh, is one of my favorite parts. And although it kind of hurts your neck after a little while, you have to be careful about not weighing weighing it down. Um, so I know the deadline for registration is approaching. Um, Ray, what what are the things that you would tell folks about registering for convention, and then other ways to engage? Sure. Before I get to that, Heather, I do want to acknowledge that we know that uh, going to Houston, Texas um, can has been a challenge for some of our members. You know, we think about our individuals in California at state schools who, because of state travel bans due to Texas politics, can't can attend with state funds. So we know that's impacting. Um, we also know that due to safety considerations, we know that they're members of different communities, whether it be trans others or those that are undocumented or immigrants don't feel safe in Houston and I think that's been part of our work in this racial justice piece is to be advocates and we started that process from the very beginning and advocating against some of the the laws that didn't pass Texas in Texas but sort of set that climate so we we're, we're mindful of that um, so as I think about the deadline um, this Friday, February 9th, is our next major registration deadline before rates increase. Um, so we're trying to promote, get the word out. Um, we're also sensitive that, you know, budgets are tight all around. Um, so I, I think we're mindful of that. For those that are not able to join us in person um, in Houston, uh, we're making available some virtual ticket options. And more information is going to be coming about that. So if you're not able to join us in Houston, there's going to be some opportunities to... Um, 
uh, see some live sessions that are streamed, all of our speakers, certain sessions on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday um, as well. Um, we believe that we have a lot to offer. Um, I know that we talked about the Ed Sessions, Heather, but we'll have a special Wednesday edition of Higher Ed Live, sponsored by you and Tony. Mm -hmm. um, we'll have the 20th anniversary of Cabaret. We have a Career Central that's gonna be really focused on career advancement and development. We'll have our marketplace of vendors. Um, we're reshifting um, how we do PKs, uh, lots of engagement opportunities. Um, but one of the other pieces too is some service learning opportunities with the Commission on Student Involvement. We know that um, Houston was impacted by Harvey um, and in many ways is still being impacted. So um, we're working on some hurricane recovery efforts through the Commission on Student Involvement and some other ways for those that are maybe can attend that they can also give back to the community in some different ways as well as we have a common read uh, which I know will be that link will be tweeted out in terms of March book three the third in that trilogy that's um, really authored by a representative John Lewis um, and it sort of mirrors sort of this dynamic about racial justice and why that's important so we have a lot to offer and, and our hope is that um, whether it's that undergrad participating in next gen to that mid-level, senior level faculty member, this is an opportunity for you to be a part of ACPA 18. Wonderful, I can't wait. I can't wait every year for ACPA, but this year especially, um, it's gonna be fabulous. So final thoughts, uh, one thing each of you would like to leave our viewers today with regarding um, the work about understanding racial justice and decolonization in advance of convention, and then a resource um, that you'd like to share or something r related to the topic that we can pass along to help folks continue their own development and, and understanding and knowledge base. Um, Dre, I'll, I'll start with you. Sure, um, I think my final comment is inspired by um, a couple emails I've gotten recently. And um, I think, you know, even hearing the conversation today, there's a way in which there's a readiness that I think all of us collectively have to the work. And um, I just wanna have an open invite to people that no matter where you are in this process, you are welcome. Um, there's a place for you to do the work with us and that um, you won't be doing it alone. So um, for resource, um, I go to my old standby, um, Teaching for Diversity and Social Justice, um, third edition is um, awesome. Um, and there's a really great unit um, that really unpacks racial justice and decolonization. So I highly recommend checking that out. Great, thanks so much. On my shelf, I love that book. Uh, Bill. Sure. Um, I think um, one of the things I've learned from one of my mentors, Kathy O'Bear, is this idea of having patience with yourself and with others. Um, a lot of people go to hostility, they go to anger, they go to impatience, but um, this is a journey. So I would say when you, if however you show up, if you could show up in, in Houston or if you show up digitally, is to, to show up to these spaces with care and compassion because um, people show up in the spaces and the places they are um, and that we can sort of move each other ahead um, from that place and sort of resources. The one that I find really helpful is sort of engaging white supremacy. There's an article by um, Kenneth Jones and Tema Akun called White Supremacy Culture from a Dismantling Racism, a Workbook for Social Change Groups. If you Google that, it's an amazing uh, article that I actually threw across the room once because it just was too real. Um, and I always find the things that I'm the most resistant to are probably the most impactful in my life. And that's been a tool that I use a lot in my work. Excellent, thanks. Lynn, what are your final thoughts? Great, um, I think to echo a little bit of what Dre and Bill just talked about, but um, also showing up and being vulnerable to having those conversations and um, engaging in them. Um, I think really that self-reflection and being vulnerable will help a lot. Um, I think for me, um, there's a lot of resources out there, but I think um, connecting with that vulnerability piece, I think Brene Brown has some really great books. Um, Darren Greatly um, has really impacted me in my um, work and my career. So I think that's a great book to read. 100% agree. Um, and Rising Strong, I think, also talks a lot about kind of showing up for um, opportunities of collective action and what that what that means as, as individuals and then as a part of a larger group. So showing up at ACPA. Um, Melissa, your final thoughts. Yeah, um, 
you know, I think that for folks that are still kind of like wondering why, why add the decolonization piece to the strategic imperative? Um, and I think one important thing to remember is that, um, you know, Native folks are not only racial identities, but we also come from a very uh, political place. Um, actually, one of um, my colleagues in Nain, um, Dr. Denise Hennings, I'll never forget when she said, I don't go a day without thinking about the federal government because the federal government classifies our identity, our blood quantum, um, our tribal communities, you know, federal recognition. I have to carry a card that says I am this much Native American. Um, and so I think it's really important for folks to understand that, um, you know, as a, a Native person, I don't only come to a space as, you know, ethnically or racially Native, but also very much a political being. Um, and I think that's one unique thing about Native identities that folks often don't really understand or maybe have never been exposed to. Um, and that's something I'll talk a little bit more about in one of the programs that um, I am presenting at convention on decolonization. Um, and so we can delve a little bit more into that, but I think that's a just a, a little snippet of, because I know some folks are like, well, why do we need to add decolonization? Doesn't racial justice completely encompass Native folks as well? And, and they really, it really doesn't, um, which actually leads into one of my um, resources would be um, an essay by Eve Tuck called Decolonization is Not a Metaphor. Fantastic article. Um, I've used this in my own research, um, and I think she really gets to the heart of the fact that essentially decolonization is not a metaphor. There's not a synonym um, and kind of goes deeper into why racial justice does not um, completely encompass Native folks. And then also a third university is possible um, by La Paperson, who is actually uh, a pseudonym for K. Wayne Tuck, or Yang, excuse me, on the Tuck piece as well. Um, and this talks a little bit more about decolonizing institutions and what it means to be on indigenous lands. Excellent, great resources. Thank you for sharing that. Ray, your final thoughts. I think for me, um, as, as we do some of this work on our campuses, is for each of us to understand what are our salient identities? What do we bring to the table? Um, and oftentimes, some of their things that folks don't see, they make assumptions about that. And I think that's very important for us. I, I, I echo what everyone else shared. How, do, how are we vulnerable? How do we self-reflect? And how we, are we prepared to learn and acknowledge and move forward? Um, so I, I appreciate I think um, we're excited about what 18 has to offer for us. You know, we don't have a theme, but our catchphrase is being bold. So my hope is, are you prepared to be bold with us this March in Houston? Excellent. Richie, final thoughts? Sure. Um, you know, I get the privilege of teaching some of our newest pro professionals um, each year in the intro course. And the two things that I teach them when they come into the, the classroom is that first, you're an educator. And remember that because education doesn't happen just in the classroom, it ha happens outside the classroom. The other is that you're a lifelong learner, that every year, every semester I go into the classroom, I expect to learn as much from the students as they take from me. And in most cases, I learn more. Um, and so really trying to set that tone. And um, one of the books that I was going to mention was Brene Brown's Daring Greatly. She had a great impact on me when she spoke at ACPA several years ago. Um, but I push the students out to say, how are you gonna be vulnerable? How are you gonna change who you are? How are you gonna think about things differently? And we use that for the lens of every topic that we talk about. And I specifically bring that back into the social justice course that, that I teach, as well as the capstone, because they have to do pachacacha. So, um, but that whole idea of saying, how do you continue to push yourself professionally? And it fits right into how we need to challenge ourselves around the strategic imperative and the privilege that most of us bring to, to the experiences of being in higher education. The other book that I will just put out that I have just become aware of from the Ash Symposium is uh, Racism Without Racist. Um, I don't know why I wasn't aware of this. I've just started looking at it. It is a great text, um, and I do encourage people to think through this because it's a pretty, pretty good text thinking about white privilege. So um, I'll leave it there. Excellent. You mentioned learning, and I think we are all uh, responsible for our own learning and for participating, not just in the classroom as we, you know, seek our graduate degrees, but then following up with professional development. So I know I learn every year when I go to convention, and I look forward to 
engaging with you all and engaging around these topics. So thank you so much for sharing about um, the upcoming convention today and about racial justice and, and decolonization in the strategic imperative. Um, as I mentioned at the start of the episode, I am working on putting together a panel to dive deeper into the topic of decolonization in higher education and in student affairs. So stay tuned for that announcement about the coming episode. Also in March, you can catch Tony and I at both NASPA and ACPA moderating fast-paced debates about contested issues in student affairs. Um, you will receive my reminders about these and other episodes by subscribing to the Higher Ed Live newsletter. And you can also browse our archives at higheredlive.com. Again, I'm Heather Shea. Thanks again to our fabulous panelists and to everyone who's watching and to Erica for tweeting the back channel. Make it a great week, everyone. Thanks. <laughs>